think that I should have dug out a speech I remembered I made about 25 years ago called Hunting Big Game with Pen and Ink. I forgot where I delivered it to some author's club. I think it might have been more appropriate. We had the out-of-town opening of this show last night in Milwaukee, and I survived it. But I must admit, it's a great test and a trial of a marriage when your wife drives up to Milwaukee with you and listens to you, and then says she wants to come and hear it again. Uh, I don't doubt her devotion, but I do have to question perhaps her sanity. <laughs> I got to speak about a building. I'm not going to talk, except where it's essential to the story about the Lincoln assassination. And I say this because if we get involved afterwards in a long series of questions about the assassination, we could be here forever. That's a different subject. But if it has some relationship to Ford, or the events that happened on the 14th and 15th of April or happened to the building in the intervening 100 150 years almost since it actually began and it's germane to the subject. At one time I thought I'd call this talk the Nine Lives of Ford Theater because it easily divides itself into nine sections. From 1833 to 1859, it was the first Baptist church in Washington. From 1859 to 61, it was a concert hall. For the next two years, it was the George Christie Opera House. From 1862, it was Ford's Athenaeum. From 63 to 65, it was Ford's Theater. From 65 to 1893, it was the old Ford's old Ford's Theater building. And from 1893 to 1931, it was the publication depot of the Adjutant General's Department. From 31 to 64, it was the Lincoln Museum. Then there's a hiatus, four years when the building is being reconstructed. And from 68 to date, and well into the future, I pray, it is the Ford's Theater and Museum. Some think I do wrong to go to the opera and the theater, but it rests me, Abraham Lincoln once confessed. I love to be alone and yet to be with the people. A hearty laugh relieves me, and I seem better able after it to bear my cross. At Ford's Theater, perhaps the most famous theater in the nation, Abraham Lincoln found that solitude among people. A respite from the pressures of the presidency and the hearty laugh that allowed him to forge ahead afterwards in his task of preserving a war-torn nation. Lincoln attended Ford's Theater ten times during his presidency. The tenth, while he was watching our American cousin Tom Taylor's comedy about social eccentrics, he was assassinated by actor John Wilkes Booth. Almost immediately, Ford's Theater was closed by Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, and for almost 100 years it remained shuttered as a theater, a silent testimony to the nation's legacy of hate. The fateful night was a tragic one for the country. It was also tragic for the elegant theater, which scarcely 18 months before had opened, had opened to the chirping of canaries suspended in cages from the gas fixtures and the carefree chatter of Washington theater goers. 511 10th Street between E and F Street, Washington, is less than a mile from the White House and is the site in which the old Ford Theater now stands and was originally occupied by the First Baptist Church of Washington almost 150 years ago constructed in 1833, and when the Fourth Baptist Congregation Church was formed on 13th Street in 1859, it was joined by that of the First Baptist Church, which gave its name to the United Group. The structure on 10th Street 
was thereafter abandoned as a house of divine worship. However, since there was a chancel or raised platform at the east end of the church to accommodate the pulpit or choir, it was not difficult to rearrange the setting for musical concerts that were given from time to time in the church building. And undoubtedly, it was this feature of the structure that attracted the attention of John T. Ford, a theater entrepreneur of Baltimore, when he arrived in the fall of 1861 seeking a location for theatrical purposes. Despite the prediction by a member of the church board of a dire fate for anyone who turned the former house of worship into a theater, Ford leased the building in December of 1861 for five years with an option to buy the property at the end of that period. Ford at the time also managed Old Drury in Baltimore and the Academy of Music in Philadelphia. Old Drury, built in 1796, was one of the oldest theaters in the East. Ford's Washington venture was to eventually earn, earn him considerable popularity, both in theatrical purposes and in history. This despite the tragic end for which his theater was destined. Ford immediately rented the theater to George Christie, who, however, advertised the structure as the George Christie Opera House. And here Christie's minstrels performed with great success from December of 1861 through February 1862, when Ford closed the building and proceeded to renovate it. According to playbills of the time, general admission was a dollar reserved seats, 50 cents extra. John T. Ford's name does not appear on advertisements for these performances. Ford was testing the reaction of wartime Washington audiences to a new theatrical venture before investing additional funds in the building. Ford's main competition at the time was furnished by Leonard Grover, who had started to rebuild the old National Theater, or Grover's Theater as it was known and was located on E Street. Following the final performance of Christie's Minstrels, Ford proceeded to remodel and to renovate the building. And from contemporary newspaper descriptions, it is possible to reconstruct to some extent the general appearance of what subsequently became known as Ford's Athenaeum. Ford renovated the building, investing $10,000 in new construction and remodeling. He undoubtedly planned well, for despite wartime restrictions on materials and labor, the renovated theater was opened in May, in March 1862, under Ford's own name as Ford's Athenaeum. John T. Ford was listed in the playbills as manager and proprietor. The National Intelligencer, the most important newspaper in Washington, hailed the completion of Ford's Athenaeum as fulfilling a long-felt need for a first-class theater. Ford had thus gained an advantage over his principal rival, Grover, who was not able to open his own new national until a month later in April. And it's interesting that both the national and Ford continue to exist in Washington. From its opening on March 19, 1862, Ford's venture achieved considerable success. An analysis of the production stage during the first season revealed that Ford chose excellent companies and first-rate stars to grace the Washington Civil War theater scene. Lincoln attended Ford's theater on May 28, 1862 for the first time, thus adding considerable prestige to the theater's list of distinguished patrons. It was during the height of the second season, however, the tragedy struck Ford's Athenaeum as if confirming the dire prediction made when Ford leased the church property. About five o'clock on the evening of December 3rd, 30th, 1862, fire caused by a defective gas meter broke out in the cellar under the stage. Fed by the combustible materials of the dressing room and stage scenery, the Holocaust raged well into the night, lighting the Washington skies. 
By morning, only the blackened walls remained standing. The entire interior of the theater was gutted. Ford's loss, which was only partially covered by fire insurance, was estimated at $20,000. Fortunately, there was no loss of life. Buildings to the north and south of the theater were all also damaged by the fire. Theatrical colleagues offered to sponsor benefits to aid Ford and the opera company, whose instruments and costumes had also been destroyed. Ford declined for himself, but accepted for the company. Subsequently, a benefit was given at the New National by Grover's company and by various Washington theatrical artists. Despite his losses, Ford immediately went ahead with new plans to construct a larger and more magnificent theater on the same site. Undoubtedly, the far-sighted wartime policy of the president served Ford's purposes as well, since it appears that he had little trouble in obtaining the necessary building materials. It'll be recalled that Lincoln said that the construction of the Capitol must go on to show the people of this nation the continuing strength of the Union. Ford's original lease with the Board of Trustees of the First Baptist Church was for Lot 10. As he desired to enlarge the theater to the north, Ford, on, in February 1863, purchased by deed a part of Lot 11. To the south, Ford had leased a part of the north section of Lot 9 for 99 years. And with the acquisition of this additional land, Ford was now prepared to make plans for his new theater. He executed a deed of trust on the property in return for a loan to help finance the new structure. Ford also made arrangements for the purchase of the First Baptist Church property by a cash payment and a series of notes. In May 1863, he executed a deed of trust for a loan on this land. In the meantime, he was selling stock certificates with a face value of $500 each. Some of Washington's leading citizens purchased stock in the project. The building cost was estimated to be $75,000. The cornerstone was laid with appropriate cer ceremonies on February 28, 1863. It was anticipated that the structure would be completed in 75 days. Delays, however, were caused by quicksand, cave-ins, and some wartime supply problems. The new theater did not open until late August of 1863. It was a large house. The exterior dimensions were 72 feet in width and 110 feet in depth. The interior of the decor, the interior decor of the theater elicited, elicited much praise. The Washington Sunday Chronicle reported Mr. Ford has shown what can be done when capital, skill, and energy are combined. In five short months, contending against unfavorable weather, a scarcity of workmen, and a score of other difficulties, he has erected a substantial theater which will be an acquisition and an ornament to the city, such as none of us a year ago could have expected to see within at least half a generation. In magnitude, completeness, and elegance, it has few superiors, not even in our largest cities. It is finished in a style that has involved the most lavish expenditure and that has brought into requisition the finest mechanical and artistic skill. We heartily congratulate Mr. Ford on his achievement and sincerely trust he will have his recompense in a continuance an increase of the popularity he has always enjoyed, and which we are sure he will spare no efforts to retain. Boxes seven and eight were known as the presidential box. It was entered by a four-foot-wide vestibule about ten feet long, opening off the south aisle of the dress circle. Separate doors opened into each box. A movable partition about seven feet high and three inches thick normally separated the boxes. When the presidential party attended Ford's theater, the partition was removed and the two boxes united into one. And that's how you see it when you visit the theater today. 
At such times, additional furniture, usually a fancy tufted sofa and rocker, were brought from H. Clay Ford's living quarters on the third floor of the South Edition and placed therein. Fancy tufted chairs also added to the decor. The auditorium was painted white with gold trim throughout. Ornamental plaster work and moldings divided the wall areas into large, well-proportioned panels. One of the principal features of the auditorium was an elaborately painted and decorated inverted saucer-shaped dome, which provided additional light and ventilation. And I didn't realize until after I'd become involved in the theater that it had a sloping stage, which sloped down toward the audience to compensate for the fact that theaters in those days, most of them did not have sloping aisles. So instead of the audience being stacked up, the actors were. And this meant an effect that when Booth made his escape, he was climbing uphill. Throughout the period of his existence, from August 27, 1863, to the fatal day, April 14, 1865, Ford's Theater presented some of the best in theatrical and musical talent that was available on the American stage. According to the final playbill of that night, Ford had staged in the theaters two seasons, 495 nightly performances. Up to 1865, Lincoln had attended Ford's theater eight times, five times in 63 and three times in 1864. Sometimes the first lady attended with her own party. In 1863, the president had seen John Wilkes Booth in the Marble Heart, and three performances by his favorite Shakespearean actor, James H. Hackett, to whom he wrote at least two fan letters which appear in the collected writings, in which I once bought and sold to the Library of Congress. He saw Maggie Mitchell in Fanchon the Critic, the Cricket, in 1864, he attended a performance by Edwin Forrest in King Lear and also two concerts. He also attended a musical concert in Ford's Athenaeum in 1862 before fire destroyed that structure. On Friday, April 14th, 1865, Washington was enjoying an era of gaiety and it and excitement reigned throughout the city. The Civil War, to all purposes, had ended with Lee's surrender a few days earlier, and many of the 200,000 soldiers visiting the city hoped to catch a glimpse of their favorite hero, General Ulysses S. Grant, commander of the victorious Union forces. Ford's theater was also the scene of anticipation, for Lincoln had finally accepted an invitation from John T. Ford to attend the performance that evening. Laura Keene, Harry Hawk, and John Diet were winding up their two-week engagement at the theater with Ford Stock Company. The play scheduled was to be a benefit for Miss Keene of Tom Tyler's Our American Cousin. This was to be Miss Keene's farewell appearance. A messenger arrived at the theater from the White House about 10.30 that morning to reserve the presidential box for the performance that evening. It was expected that the president would have as his guests General and Mrs. Grant. James Ford, the brother of the theater owner with the help of H.B. Phillips, an actor of the Ford Stock Company, wrote the notice that appeared in the Evening Star about 2 p.m. that afternoon and also in the National Intelligence. New handbills were also ordered printed. When Harry, which was the nickname for H. Clay Ford, another brother returned from breakfast about 11.30 a.m., James informed him of the president's coming. Because of the rehearsal going on at the time, Henry, Harry had to wait to decorate the presidential box. Later that day, the notices and handbills had to be changed when it was learned that General Ford could not attend. Extra playbills and handbills, which runners of the theater passed out on the streets, were pricked. General Grant could not attend, of course. Extra playbills and handbills, which runners of the theater passed out on the streets, were printed to attract the attention of military personnel on leaving the city. 
And sometime that afternoon, between 3 and 6 p.m., Harry Ford personally decorated the presidential box. Three velvet armchairs, a velvet-covered sofa, and six cane chairs, all being brought from the green room on the stage. Peanuts Burroughs, the black employee who was a doorman at the stage door of the 10th Street passageway, brought a walnut rocker from Forge Rooms on the third floor of the Star Saloon building, which was attached to the theater on the south. Ford also placed two American flags on staffs at each end of the expanded box and draped two more on the velvet-covered balustrade of each box. And at the center post placed a blue Treasury Guards regimental flag. Ford added an additional touch to these normal decorations of the presidential box when he placed a gilt-framed engraving of George Washington on its central pillar. The partition which usually separated the two boxes was removed. Because a triangular corner was formed in box seven when the partition was removed, the walnut rocker in which the president was to sit was placed there with its rockers pointing west toward the audience. On 10th Street that evening, the theater presented an atmosphere of gaiety coupled with the religious mystery of Good Friday, 1865. The glimmer of the damp weather of Holy Week and of the huge gas lamp standing in front of the theater at the sidewalk platform was enhanced by the sickly yellowish flame of black smoking torches stuck in barrels running down the street to Pennsylvania Avenue. At each barrel stood a barker yelling, this way to Fords, this way to Fords. Inside the theater, a gala evening was looked forward to, and Laura Keene had lent the Fords her personal piano for use that evening for the singing of a special song, Honor to Our Soldiers, composed for the occasion by William Withers, the orchestra leader. The song was to be sung by the entire company at the close of our American cousin. At the White House, just as President Lincoln was ready to leave, about 7.30 that evening, to start for Fords, two visitors detained him. Schuyler Colfax, Speaker of the House, and George Ashman of Massachusetts, who had been chairman of the Republican Convention of 1860, that named Lincoln as its candidate. During the chat with them, Ashman said that many of the president's friends had been greatly concerned for his safety on the occasion of his recent trip to Richmond. I would have been alarmed myself, said Lincoln, if any other person had been president and had, and had gone there, but I did not find any danger whatsoever. Ashman wished for himself and a client of his an interview with Lincoln on a matter of business, so the president wrote on a card, allow Mr. Ashman and friend to come in at 9 a.m. tomorrow, April 14, 1865, A. Lincoln. These were the last words Abraham Lincoln was ever to write. The president and Mrs. Lincoln then entered a car carriage, and Francis Burke, the burly Irish White House coachman, started his team and the carriage rolled away toward the residence of Senator Ira T. Harris in New York, which was located at 15th and 8th Street, not too far from where the Statler Hilton is today. It was close to a quarter after eight. John F. Parker, the special guard who had been detailed for duty to guard Lincoln at the theater, was even now on his way to Ford. In the theater, the performance had begun. A quarter to eight was the regular time for the overture. The house was filled, except for the presidential boxes. The president and Mrs. Lincoln had picked up Miss Clara Harris, daughter of the senator, and her fiance, Major Henry R. Rathbone, the president's military aide, and arrived at Ford's theater about 8.30. They entered the theater through the second door of the lobby. John F. Parker joined the presidential party at this point. John M. Buckingham, the doorkeeper and main ticket collector, greeted them. The president, as was his custom, had purchased his tickets. 
He always refused complimentary tickets to the theater. Parker escorted the party up the stairs to the dress circle, through its lobby, and down the stairs along the south wall. Just as they got to the door to enter the passageway to their seats, Lincoln paused and bowed to the audience to acknowledge their stormy and enthusiastic greeting. On stage, American cousin, our American cousin was going smoothly, and Lord Dundreary was telling Florence Trenchard why a dog wags its tail. William Withers, the orchestra leader, as soon as he became conscious of the excitement aroused by the president's arrival, had the orchestra strike up hailed at the chief as stage action was halted. The audience rose and all eyes turned toward the president. While the orchestra played, the group entered the presidential box. The audience waved handkerchiefs, applauded, and cheered. The president came to the front of the box and smilingly acknowledged the cordial welcome. The play was then resumed. Mrs. Lincoln then sat on a cane chair next to the president's rocker. Miss Harris sat in the armchair nearest the stage. The president sat on the, sat on the rocker farthest from the stage where he was barely visible from the audience. Major Rathbone sat on the velvet-covered sofa behind Mrs. Harris, Miss Harris, and toward the rear of the box. One of the armchairs and five of the cane chairs remain unoccupied. Although the doors were closed, the locks on all were broken and could easily be pushed in. Parker, the sole bodyguard permitted by the president, sat outside the entrance door, but shortly left his post. The presidential party was thus left unprotected. During the performance, the audience occasionally caught a glimpse of Lincoln's profile and saw his left hand resting on the flag-draped balustrade. During scene two of the second act, John Wilkes Booth led a bay mare by the bridle rein up the alley to the rear door of the theater. John L. D. Bonet, who was playing the part of a servant in the play, happened to be standing near the door. Booth told D. Bonet, tell Spangler to come to the door and hold my horse. Edmund Spangler was the theater scene shifter. D. Bonet conveyed the message to Spangler who explained that he could not leave his post. He asked Peanuts Burroughs, the stage doorkeeper, to hold Booth's horse. And Peanuts did so, probably thinking of the tip that Mr. Booth would give him. Booth went into Peter Taltaville's Star Saloon, which adjoined Ford's Theater on the south. He called for a whiskey instead of his customary brandy and laid his money on the bar. Meanwhile in the theater, the curtain had fallen on the second act. Several of the Ford's employees dropped into the Star Saloon for a drink between acts. As they entered, Booth was leaving. At about 13 minutes after 10 o'clock, he walked into the theater, checked the time in the lobby clock, walked past the doorkeeper, and mounted the stairs to the dress circle. He paused while the play progressed. When scene two of act three began, Booth poised for action. The scene had changed and the stage had closed in, meaning that the flats had been brought forward to show a room in Trenchard Manor. The interval from the scene to the middle of the footlights was now only about 20 feet. <coughs> On the stage, Mrs. Mount Chessington said to her daughter Augusta, Augusta, dear, to your room. The mother and daughter in the play then exited, leaving Asa Trenchard, the central character played by Harry Hawk, as the only person on the stage. He was standing a little back of the line of the boxes, and behind him was a curtain doorway. Miss Harris and her fiancé were intent upon Asa's soliloquy. William Withers' orchestra was mute. At this moment, Booth quickly entered the passageway to the presidential box. He entered by the door to box seven, 
and because of the darkness was able to move around behind the president without detection. On the stage, Asa Trencher delivered his lines. Don't know the manners of good society, hey? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you outside, old gal. You sockdologizing old mantrap. This was a line which Booth had heard in rehearsal and knew it would produce loud laughter. It's ironic that this great speaker who delivered such impeccable addresses would hear those words as his last words he ever heard. At this moment, with the laughter rocking the house, Booth fired his fatal shot. The time was approximately 10.20 p.m. The shot came almost simultaneously with Mrs. Lincoln's laughter. The sound of the shot was muffled, but distinct. Abruptly from within the box, there was a piercing scream. It has never been established whether it came from Mrs. Lincoln or Miss Harris. Major Har Rathbone looked around, startled. He saw a shadow man behind the president's chair. The president's head had fallen back on the chair rocker. A little cloud of smoke drifted over the president's head. A hoarse voice barked at Rathbone. He thought he heard the word freedom, and then something like Six Semper Tyrannus. Rathbone sprang at the figure and grappled with him. A steel blade flashed, and as a defensive elbow was raised, Rathbone's arm took a savage gash to the bone. Rathbone reared back, lunged again, and clung. Wrestled to the edge of the box, Booth flung the officer off and got a leg over the rail. Rathbone made another grab as Booth rolled himself over the ledge and hung for a second by his hands. Cloth tore through Rathbone's grasp. He tried to shout, to shout. His clutch grabbed the air. Audience laughter was dying out as Booth let go for the drop to the stage. In dropping, he hooked the spur in the Treasury Guard's flag, which draped the face of the box. Bunting ripped, and he fell through a blur of red, white, and blue. He felt a sickening little snap as he tore free of the flag. In falling, Booth tore a hole in the green base carpeting, which covered the forestage. And although the tibia of his right leg was fractured, Booth was able to make his escape with little trouble by dragging himself across the stage and down the comparatively clear passageway on stage right. On his way, Booth ran into orchestra leader William Withers, slashed him twice, and disappeared through the rear door, jerking it shut after him. Booth then seized the reins of his horse from Peanut's burrows, knocked him down, which is the only tip he got, jumped astride his horse, and made good his escape through the alley to the rear, whose exit was on F Street. Afterwards, Rathbone testified, the time which elapsed between the discharge of the pistol and the time when the assassin leaped from the box did not exceed 30 seconds. Rathbone also testified that there were no guards in the box, just the president, Mrs. Lincoln, Miss Harris, himself, and no other person. Lincoln was shot with a pocket derringer, which was the companion of this derringer. It was made by Henry Derringer of Philadelphia. It's a crude weapon. It is only effective if shot virtually point blank. It's about 41 caliber. This weapon was made in Philadelphia at the same time the Booth weapon was made. It happens to be in better shape. It's the, maybe the only perfect copy in existence with original parts. Uh, many of the Booth uh, Derringers have been restored with uh, modern parts. The Derringer that Booth used, which is on exhibit at the Ford's Theater, has some defects. And in recent years, particularly in Japan, 
fantastic replicas have been made which can only be detected by an expert. I happen to have handled this three times. I bought it maybe originally 30 years ago, sold it to a collector, got it back when his collection was dispersed, sold it again. He gave it to a brother-in-law who sold it to me, and now I have it once more, and I suspect temporarily. <laughs> but this little crude instrument killed one of the greatest men the world has ever known. I'll leave it here, but I'll watch it carefully. <laughs> President Lincoln's death at 7.22 a.m. the following morning in the Peterson House, across the street from Ford's, ended the use of the building as a theater. Military guards had been immediately posted at the theater, and access to it only permitted by special pass from the Judge Advocate's Office of the War Department. For a few days, several of the theater employees were allowed to sleep in the regular rooms in the north wing of the structure, and several of the musicians and actors were allowed to remove their personal possessions. Fortunately, Matthew Brady was permitted to photograph the interior of the theater as it was at the time of the assassination. And today his photographs constitute one of the most important documentary sources on the appearance of the interior and exterior of Ford's theater as of Friday, April 14, 1865. Lieutenant Simon P. Currier of the Judge Advocate's Office was ordered to draw a plan of the stage of Ford's Theater, <coughs> establishing precise measurements and the location of all stage paraphernalia used that night. In addition to listing all of the persons associated with the production of our American cousin, minute measurements of the boxes were also made. John T. Ford received official permission to reopen the theater after the hanging of the conspirators on July 7, 1865. He advertised that the Octoroon, the play which had been scheduled for Saturday night, April 15, 1865, would be given on the evening of July 10, 1865. He sold over 200 tickets to the performance. He also received an anonymous letter from an outraged citizen who threatened to burn the theater if it should reopen as a place of amusement. As a precautionary measurement, the judge advocate ordered a troop of soldiers to be stationed at the theater to deny admission to all comers. A company of cavalry was also held in readiness on the outskirts of the city in case of emergency. When the theater opened that night, Ford refunded the purchasers the price paid for their tickets of admission. This was Ford's last attempt to stage a theatrical performance in the building. Shortly thereafter, the theater was taken over by the government and remodeled into a three-story office building. Ford was paid $1,500 per month beginning July 1865 for the lease of the theater and such time as Congress would appropriate sufficient money to authorize the purchase of the building. In July 1866, Ford was paid $88,000 as a final settlement by the Treasury Department for the purchase of the structure, he having already received $12,000 in rentals under the terms of the lease, which means that Ford received $100,000 for Ford's theater. Once the building was taken over by the government, the Quartermaster General started to convert the theater into a three-story office building for the use of the government owing to the shortage of office space in post-war Washington. In August 1865, work was begun tearing out the interior of the theater as the souvenir hunters went wild. By December of that year, the building had been altered to such an extent that the Surgeon General was, was authorized to take it over for the use of the Army Medical Museum. The building was used for this purpose until 1887 when Congress appropriated funds for the construction of an independent medical museum. From 1866 to 1887, only the third floor had been used by the medical museum. The Office of Records and Pensions, the Adjutant General's Office, 
used the first and second floors of the remodeled theater buildings, which became known as Old Ford Theater Buildings, to compile the official pension records of veterans of the Civil War. When the Surgeon General vacated the building in 1887, the Adjutant General took over the entire structure. Tragedy struck the building once again on June 9, 1893, when a 40-foot section of the front of the building collapsed from the third floor, hurling men, desks, and heavy file cases in the cellar, killing 22 government employees and injuring 65 others. Following congressional investigation of the tragedy, the building's career as an office structure was ended with but minor activities allowed in it thereafter. There has long been a legend repeated in several serious books of history that the building collapsed at the very moment Edwin Booth, the brother of John Wilkes Booth, died. It's almost correct. Edwin Booth actually died on June 7th, two days before the building tragedy. There's another interesting Booth-Lincoln story. Many of us have read and doubted, as I did, that one day as Robert Lincoln was preparing to board a Pennsylvania railroad car, passenger car in Baltimore, and the train was started up, he stumbled and began to fall between the moving cars. A strong arm reached out and pulled him to safety, and he looked up and recognized Edwin Booth. It's the kind of preposterous story that you just refuse to believe. But not long ago, when I was going through the recently discovered letter books of Robert Lincoln, some 20,000 letters, I discovered two letters of Robert Lincoln in which he recounts the incident. It happened, by the way, in 1863, two years before the assassination. From 1893 to 1931, the building served as a publication depot for the adjutant general. In 18, 1931, Old Ford's Theater Building was turned over to the Department of the Interior, and in 1932, the Lincoln Museum opened on the first floor, the upper stores being used for small office forces. It was a pretty pathetic museum. The floor was just completely flat, with outlines painted on the floor, much as if it were a gymnasium floor, showing where the stage had been, where the boxes were, where the seats were, and so forth. It was run by an old Civil War veteran named Osborne H. Oldroyd, and several of you, I'm down sure, have seen books by Oldroyd on the Lincoln assassination, on Lincoln's poetry, on himself, and on the Civil War. And interesting enough, Oldroyd also at one time operated the Lincoln home in Springfield as a museum and did it just as poorly. <laughs> Fortunately, both buildings have been rescued, both from Oldroyd and his tradition. Throughout the first 90 years after the assassination of President Lincoln, there was little thought of restoring the theater to its original appearance as a memorial to the martyred president. When public interest in its restoration was first brought to the attention of Congress, after World War II, the building became the subject of considerable controversy. Some members of the House and Senate expressed reservations about creating a memorial to murder. Nevertheless, public interest continued to be manifested in the restoration of Ford's Theater, especially when Congress took the initiative and provided funds for a preliminary engineering report on the structure. In 1959, renewed interest was aroused in the full restoration of Ford's Theater, partly due, of course, because 1959 was the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's birth, and also because of the forthcoming Civil War Centennial Celebration and the Mission 66 program of the National Park Service. Operation, opposition to the restoration now ceased as Congress voted funds for the restored project. Public Law 86-455, signed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, authorized the National Park Service to complete preliminary architectural and historical research on the old Ford Theater building. 
our American cousin and the reenactment of the assassination would never be produced in that theater. In the museum below the theater, the whole story of the assassination and the relics and the pistol and everything are displayed. During the daytime, there is a filmed sound and light performance. But I thought, thought it was obscene to assassinate Lincoln at regular intervals by preventing, presenting the play, which incidentally is a terrible drama. Many years ago, the Goodman Theater decided to produce Our American Cousin. I had seen many performances. In fact, Otto Eisenschimmel and I had been dragged to many performances which also always ended with the assassination of Lincoln. But this time, Goodman went all the way through, and I saw the play. And I said then, and I think I would say again, Mr. Lincoln was lucky. I'd rather be assassinated than see that whole play. God, it's dreadful. But recently, uh, the present directors did allow a... Uh, reenactment of our American cousin. I think it was a dreadful mistake. It destroys the illusion, the beauty, and the meaning of the theater. It's not a memorial to murder. It's a tribute to Lincoln's love of the theater. Ford? Ford. Significant things about boxing and Keene. Were there any after that? There were some, Ford, but I got so engrossed in doing this, I didn't check further on. But, you know, there are tragedy encountered many of the people involved in the story. Major Rathbone married Miss Harris. They moved to Germany and one day his mind snapped and he tried to kill his children. He was stopped. Later he killed Miss Harris and spent the rest of his life in an insane asylum in Germany. Interesting, his son Congressman Henry Rathbone represented Illinois in the Congress and died in 1928. Sergeant Boston Corbett, who killed Booth at the Garrett in the farm near Garrett's, uh, at the barn near Garrett's farm, later became a doorkeeper at the Kansas legislature, and one day he started to shoot up the legislature because he felt they weren't doing their job which I don't think is a sign of insanity, but nevertheless, <laughs> it isn't being done. Brad, do you want to comment on the coincidence of uh, U.S. Grant's refusal to accompany Lincoln on that fatal day? I think he also asked Seward to accompany him. He, uh, he couldn't have asked Seward, because Seward was, was, uh, was in bed. He had suffered a, a carriage in, uh, injury. He invited Grant but Grant and Mrs. Grant had been away from their family and their children. They had been subject to so many public appearances in the several days that had elapsed since the ending of the war, and they were very tired, and they just wanted to go home with their family. There's nothing significant or sinister about their refusal of the invitation. They just wanted to be home with their family. Uh, there have been speculations that Mrs. Grant didn't like Mrs. Lincoln. Mrs. Lincoln was insanely jealous and so forth. Well, Mrs. Lincoln had shown some signs of jealousy when Mr. Lincoln had been with some pretty ladies, but as Pat can testify, Mrs. Grant was a devoted wife, but hardly a raving beauty, because in addition to being our only cross-eyed first lady, she wasn't very beautiful. But she was a beautiful person inside but there's no significance to Grant's refusal. It's just he thought he put his family first. Dave? Yeah, I always thought that uh, Booth and John Carpenter That's a rumor. It doesn't appear in any serious work of history. And there is no proof that John Parker went to the Star Saloon. It is more likely that Parker, instead of sitting behind the door, was sitting alongside the door where he could see part of the stage and probably, in his very natural, became so engrossed with the play that he moved over and was watching the play and consequently couldn't watch the door to the box when Booth entered. 
it, that's right, so he had to walk around to the edge and watch the play. But if you're engrossed in the play, you can't look behind you to see someone come in. And Booth, you know, had watched the rehearsal of the play. He certainly knew the house well. He timed it perfectly. It was at the time. I think it's awful. It's in neither. It's in Greenfield Village uh, in Detroit. Henry Ford bought it and put it in Greenfield Village. A replica is in Ford's theater. I tried as eloquently as I could and with as much help as I could to persuade the directors of the museum at Greenfield Village, the Ford Museum, to donate it to Ford's Theater where it belongs, and we would give them the fact the reproduction, but they didn't have it. The uh, museum at Greenfield Village is great, but Mr. Henry Ford and the Zeal did some ridiculous things. For instance, he bought the Postville Courthouse near Lincoln, Illinois, where Lincoln had practiced on the Seventh Judicial Circuit. It was dismantled, moved, and rebuilt, and in Greenfield Village. And then several years later, the state of Illinois appropriated money and built a reproduction of the building on the very site where the original stood. And when you go there today, unless someone tells you, you think you're in the building that Lincoln had practiced in. Such silly things happen, usually because politicians make those decisions. In this case, aided by Henry Ford's money. Bill? You know, I think one thing that is beloved of conspiracy buffs, and I'll leave that, is, and Mike supports your theory about where Parker was, is that no action was ever taken against Parker, and no one had ever seriously maintained that he was in any way deficient in what he was doing. Well, he probably was deficient, but there's a good article in the current issue of, Lincoln, of the Lincoln Herald, which was written by our fellow member and friend Berlin Sprague, who very generously gives me some credit for it. Uh, Parker was appointed to that particular post at the direct request of Mary Lincoln. In fact, I once had the letter she wrote ordering Parker to be assigned to be the president's guard. Parker had a very indifferent, and I'm being very kind, record as a Washington policeman. Why then did she pick Parker? My theory is, and Berlin agrees with it too, is Mary Lincoln's mother's maiden name was Parker. And this probably was a cousin or a second cousin, and probably someone said, you know, why don't you see to it that cousin John gets some nice appointment? And I think that explanation is just about it. And because of his connection with the White House, he was not rep even reprimanded even though he was not on the job uh, and a lot of people who were only tangentially connected with the crime or with the theater received a pretty rough time. The, the point is if he was in a saloon full of people I don't think they could have neatly covered that up. You know, no, I don't think he was in the star saloon. He was in the theater could but he also, just wasn't watching his job. Could you also comment since all of our wonderful old theaters uh, have phantom scene shifters at night could you comment on uh, any eerie experiences with the Phantom Walker of Theater? No, the, the, there aren't any anymore. Uh, the box is never occupied. I did on one occasion, using my authority, sit in the box and have my photograph taken, and I don't know what happened to the photograph, so maybe that's the jinx still operating. But. Uh, <laughs> It's a very exciting, beautiful house, and you don't feel ghosts or anything sinister or foreboding or gloomy. You feel, it, you feel rather happy in it. I know many of you have been there. It is a beautiful theater, and faithfully uh, restored, except for a few modern conveniences. Air conditioning is present, though you can't tell where it comes from. The lighting is, of course, modern though it looks like the candlelight of the period and gaslight of the period while all 26 or 2340 seats are there only about 1400 can be used because modern fire laws will not permit you to use the second balcony uh, 
And one other thing, there were cane chairs to sit on, and maybe in those days, particularly the ladies with their full dresses and extra padding could use them, but we decided that we needed cushions, and cushions that might have been used in that period were provided, and I was able to persuade a affluent American corporation to provide the cushions for the theater. Would you care to comment on the missing pages in the Booth Diary? <laughs> As I started out, uh, Merlin, I, I don't think we want to get involved in the assassination. We'd be here forever. Uh, I will say this, I think it's the comments are ridiculous. Do you suspect that as he rode away with a broken leg in an agony, having assassinated the President of the United States and fleeing for his life, Booth would stop from time to time and make entries, Dear Diary, <laughs> he may have used the pages for notes or anything before the assassination. He may have even used them for sanitary reasons as he was escaping. But I don't think he would have written anything incriminating in a diary. That's the most preposterous theory I've ever heard uh, expressed. But it's done by people who want to raise sinister and romantic and uh, different kind of theories because you refuse to accept a mundane, logical, comparatively dull explanation for the death of a hero. Lincoln was killed by a half-crazed actor who was disturbed by the Union victory. He thought by killing Lincoln he could turn the tide. He had before that planned to kidnap Lincoln, which was not a very practical plan. All the presidential assassins have been losers. I think we suffer too much from the Lincoln assassination and the Kennedy assassination, not because we don't know enough, because too much has been published and allows us to speculate and allows those who want to make a quick buck to produce books or even worse movies as bad as that very recent Lincoln murder mishmash which brainwashes a nation and causes people young and old who have never read a serious book in their life now think they know the story of Lincoln's assassination it's terrible Ralph uh, I know that you probably have a good collection of these, but I can't think of one that I have more pleasure in presenting for you to cherish for your memory of this night. Thank you very much. You can never be the recipient of too many tokens of Thank you for coming. Uh, read your bulletin. We may have another location next month, but we are going to have Albert Pike as the feature by Dr. Walter Brown from the University of Arkansas. See you all next month.